Well, now we turn our attention to God's Word. We're in Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to borrow one of ours, which you'll find from uh, one of the chairs in front of you. And our text there is on page 739 for today. 739, we are in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. As we come to this chapter, we've been working through the book of Daniel the last few weeks. And in many ways, we see different details but we ultimately see the same problem. God's people being threatened by the world around them, both by sinful leaders, a sinful nation, by uh, temptation within their own hearts. And when we look to the Bible, we see that basically the Bible identifies three basic enemies for God's people, even for Christians today, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the world is exactly what it sounds like. It is the world around us, swayed by sin, that causes it to to, to uh, exist in rebellion against God. And we can see that in everything from the cultural preferences and pressures around us to conform, as well as to uh, evil governments. The flesh is not what it sounds like. It is not the physical part of our bodies. Rather, it is, in fact, our spiritual selves. It is our sinful nature. Temptation does not just come from outside of us, but it wells up from within as our own sinful hearts rebel against God. And it is uh, very much an enemy to us, and yet God has given us his spirits, a new nature to fight against it. The one who uses both of these things, external pressure, internal uh, corruption against us, is the devil himself. He is a real created being who led in the original rebellion against God and tempted our first parents to do the same. And when we come to realize that through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, these repeated attempts of attack on God's people, specifically Daniel and his friends, either taking them out in their faith and obedience to God or perhaps taking them out in terms of ending their very lives, these attacks, constant attacks show us there is a repetition to our lives as Christians. In this, we exist in continual spiritual conflict. To live the life of a Christian is to live in a war, a spiritual battle, and it is ongoing, and it is for the souls of men, and there is no rest or retreat until the king himself, Jesus, comes and puts an end to it all. And perhaps this afternoon or the week ahead, you'll want to know more about that, and you can turn and read Ephesians chapter 6. But this morning, what I want us to see is what it looks like to achieve victory in this ongoing spiritual conflict. This morning what we see is an example of faithful devotion to God. Pressures from without, temptations from within, Satan on the prowl, and yet here uh, Daniel's three friends show us what victory looks like. And we should not only see them as an example to model, but what we should see in their example is specifically what to do so that we ourselves might, might come to the end of our days and find that we have been faithfully devoted to God. In the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream by God. It was a dream of a massive idol with a gold head, chest and arms of silver, torso of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And this imposing image was then felled, even obliterated, brought to dust by a massive rock that struck it at its feet and then grew to be a mountain that covered the entire world. It was a dream that disturbed the king so much that he desperately sought to know what it meant. However, none of his advisors, none of his um, men that he had gathered around himself to be able to interpret dreams and do so many things, they didn't know what to do with it. Only one person 
A man exiled from his home country, Daniel, could interpret the dream. And he was more skilled in this, not because he himself was more knowledgeable or more wise, but because God had given him the interpretation of the dream. God had given him the wisdom and the skill that he needed. And in that chapter, at the end, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, gave glory to Daniel's God and lavished blessing on Daniel and his friends. And yet he soon forgot the meaning of the dream. The meaning of the dream was this. Nebuchadnezzar, you exist as the king of a glorious empire, but one day that empire is going to fall. Another empire will take its place, and another empire after that, and another empire after that, until a kingdom comes that will never end. A kingdom based on the rock that God himself will send. Our story picks up shortly after all this has happened, and in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we read this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the harp, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and bow, uh, fall down and worship, shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As the narrative opens, we see, first of all, the context for faithful devotion. The context for faithful devotion. Perhaps it was an effort to thwart the prophetic words spoken against him, or perhaps it was just plain and simple pride. Regardless, King Nebuchadnezzar focused on the thing that mattered to him most, that he was the golden head atop that vision that he had from God. And it's hard to know exactly what this giant idol was supposed to be, but he decided that in honor of himself and his gods and his kingdom, he would in fact make an entire image, an entire idol made of gold. And again, we aren't told exactly what it is. We assume it's a man, a person of some kind. All we're told is that he made it, that it's gold, and that it's huge. I mean, most of us don't deal in cubits uh, these days. We think in terms of feet and yards and miles. Uh, We use the metric system if we're really cool and savvy, but uh, that's not me. So you have to look up. What's the conversion? Well, when you do the conversion, what you see is this thing is over 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. I mean, that that is a massive structure even today, but especially for that day. Again, we don't know exactly what it's an image of, but... Uh, the historical sources tell us that the Babylonian kings never, never received worship as gods themselves. Others would do that later. So what we presume is it's some kind of image or homage to Nebuchadnezzar's God. At the same time, when you read the narrative, you'll notice it's repeated six times over and over and over again that this is the image that the king set up. Six times in seven verses. In other words, the identity of the king is bound up in the identity of the idol. 
the, the, the image that the king has put up has been extricably bound together with his own understanding of who he is and what he is meant to do. So the herald announces, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now what's interesting is that we're told this is the Valley of Dura. You may not know, but this is the same place, we believe, that the Tower of Babel once stood many centuries before. And there's a real sense in which the king, perhaps unwittingly, is seeking to do another mini version of what took place there before. He has all kinds of peoples and languages and nations gathering together to bow down to this idol, ultimately in defiance of God. And so this, frankly, is the context then in which faithful devotion to God is most clearly seen. It's the context of the culture of idolatry, the culture of idolatry. Perhaps as we think about today and we think about that same context for faithful devotion, the reality is that's our context today. We exist in a culture of idolatry. We don't necessarily have giant obelisks that we go and bow down to, but we do bow down to so many different things. Perhaps most recently it is most clearly seen in our president announcing that he now supports so-called gay marriage. What's happened there? Well, to put it bluntly, he has bowed down to an idol, to the idol of a newly defined idea of tolerance that says ultimately no one is wrong. You can't tell somebody's wrong. It used to be you could say, I think you're wrong, but I also think in this country you have the right to your opinion and to say it. Now we can't do that. Now we just say, no, ever, nobody's wrong. But when you say that, not everybody can be right. So, so what are we to do? Well, I think if you're the president, you become driven by the desire to be accepted by society. You're driven by public pressure of an affluent subculture, and so you bow down to it as an idol. Your desire to be liked outweighs any sense of what is right and wrong or morality that you may have. Now, frankly, it's easy to point a finger at someone like him. It's easy to point the finger at the culture. But the reality is we make the same mistake as well even as God's people. You know, it's not without reason that people talk about churches having sacred cows. That's biblical language for idols and idolatry. There are things that often we can't even see in ourselves that we bow down to and we give authority in our lives even though they shouldn't. I think the Swiss theologian John Calvin was surely right when he said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, it says there is no end to us seeing the good things that God has given to us that are meant to be for us and for our enjoyment and for our benefit and yet turning them into substitutes for God. Instead of being good gifts, they become ultimate gifts and we wind up bowing down to them. And in the past, when we looked at Jonah, which had a massive theme of idolatry, I kind of gave you a list of questions to think through and ask. Um, ask of yourself to determine what your idols are. And this week as I was preparing, I thought, you know, I think it might, there might be an easier test. There might be an easier question to determine what your idols are. And it's simply this. If you are an active Facebook user, what comes up most often in your newsfeed? Not what you see from other people, but what do you most frequently post about? Perhaps that identifies what your idol is. Now, I don't, I don't know what all you post about. Perhaps you're not on Facebook. So here's another question. What most frequently comes up in your checkbook? That's another way to identify 
your item. They say, well, I don't use checks. I do online banking. All right, smart aleck. What about your statement? My point is, typically, your money flows from where your heart is. So when your heart is bound up too closely in something, perhaps to the point that it becomes an idol, it's something that you worship and bow down to, maybe not literally, but at least in terms of the intentions of your heart, you can see it by the money trail. Follow the money. Our mind and our hearts default to finding something to worship. That is how God has built us. But sin comes in when we don't worship God, we worship other things. And yet, and yet, that is the context in which faithful devotion can be most clearly seen. Is in the context when so many are not faithfully devoted to God, when so many are not giving Him the worship He deserves, when so many are worshiping all manner of other things, that we who worship God faithfully and devotedly to Him can stand most clearly and starkly against that culture. In fact, that's the very thing that we see happening to these three young men that we were introduced to earlier in the book, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, known in Babylon as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here in the next section of chapter 3, we see this. We see not just the culture, the culture in which, or the context, rather, of faithful devotion. We see the resolve of faithful devotion. The resolve of faithful devotion. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that certain time, that is the time in which Nebuchadnezzar is gathering these people together to worship this idol, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the, old, the golden image that you have set up. Now, we can only speculate about why these people ratted out Daniel's friends. My guess is, though, they resented being shown up by them in the previous chapter. I mean, these guys uh, would have had a position... Uh, and would have been respected where the Chaldeans come up earlier, and yet here are these foreigners who come and are given better places of prominence. In fact, they are the superiors that, uh, that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the superiors that these Chaldeans have to report to. They are over this province of Babylon, and perhaps as Nebuchadnezzar stands out over this vast people, he cannot see, that at least as far as we know, while everyone bows down, there are three men who stand together, not bowing down. But the Chaldeans have seen it. And perhaps they see now an opportunity to get their just desserts, to rat these men out and get them in trouble. Now, there could have been more Jews that, that didn't bow down. We don't know. All we, all we are told is these three are the ones who identify to the king. Now, if you're really thinking and engaged, you're probably wondering, where's Daniel? I mean, the book is named after him, right? Did he not bow down? Well, to be honest, we're not told. We're not told where he's at. We're not told what's going on. But I think if we just read the end of chapter 2, we have some idea. We're told there because that Daniel was able to interpret the dream that the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. I think that's where he's at. I think he's back at the capital in the king's court overseeing affairs while the king himself is gone. And therefore he's not here. And yet his three friends are. 
Regardless of the details, though, the focus is on the three friends, and we know the king is not happy when he hears that they refuse to bow down. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. They were brought, these men, before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a, fire, a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? King has all this planned out so well. And you might be tempted to think, you see this list of instruments, it seems kind of hodgepodge. He's got some kind of small-time Salvation Army band kind of banging away in the background. But that's, that's, not, that's not how you should think. You should see that it's not just one of these instruments. It's several of all these different kinds of instruments. It's the kind of Babylonian equivalent of a massive orchestral group playing uh, contemporary worship music. That's what he's doing. He has this, all of this laid out. He's got everything in order. When the, when the grand music is played, the kind of pomp and circumstance that is supposed to move these people emotionally into this worship experience, they are to all to bow down collectively together and have this moment as the conquered peoples of Babylon. He is seeking, I believe, to draw people into this act of worship through the grandeur of the thing, of all of the pomp and circumstance and music, and therefore cement the event in their minds and hearts. Where do I get that from? Well, from the fact that Nebuchadnezzar... Well, first of all, she knows how many times it's repeated. That, that's not unintentional. There's actually some paraphrased translations, and they, they just delete that out because they think it's, it's repetitive. No, it's there for effect. It is supposed to be comical. Because Nebuchadnezzar thinks if he just plays the right music and sets things at the right time and puts up the right image, that everyone is going to bow down and worship and go along with him. If we just say the right things, if we just show the right visuals, if we sing the right songs, people will believe our message and worship our God. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It knows about larger church culture? How do these young people respond, though? We read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. There's no defense. They, they essentially say, in common vernacular, what do you want us to say, O king? There's nothing you're going to do. The fancy music or the, the nice image, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to cause us to bow down and worship your God. You're not going to change our minds. You're not going to change our hearts. That's what they're saying. To perhaps paraphrase a movie I saw recently, they're saying, there is one God, and that's not what he looks like. Therefore, we're not bowing down to him. That's what these men are saying. And more than just saying it, they're living it. Here is the context of idolatry where this massive nation is bowing down, and they're just standing there saying, we're not going to do it. We're not going to be bullied. We're not going to be tempted. We're not going to be swayed by pomp and circumstance into doing something that is inherently disrespectful and blasphemous to the one true God. Even under threat of death, they refuse to bow the knee. And the question we have to ask is, what about us? What about us? What tough decisions have we had to make in order to display faithfulness to God? What have we had to give up because of our faith in God? Have we had to give up anything? Have we even 
have we even been called to simply be inconvenienced in order to display faithfulness to God? If not, is that because we've been spared from those kind of situations or because we lack the kind of resolve that these men have? There's this great uh, commercial for the Marines, I think. That's actually, maybe it's not that great of a commercial. I don't remember which branch of the military it is. But um, it basically said, you know, it shows this, you know, some disaster is happening. It basically says most people run from danger, but there's one, there's one breed that runs towards it. And, and, and as Christians, you have to ask yourself, when, when, when the world's way of thinking collides with the Christian worldview, are you the kind that, that runs away from the collision, that wants to capitulate to the culture and just make everybody happy, or, or are you ones that, that run toward the collision and stand up strong and resolve for God, showing your faithfulness to Him? You may wonder how these men have come to have such resolve. The truth is that it comes from having a big vision of God. It comes from seeing and knowing and clearly believing who God says He is. It comes from knowing Him and trusting Him. This is what we see in verses 16 through 18. Here we see the confidence of faithful devotion. The confidence of faithful devotion. The king believes he is in charge of all these things. He believes that he is even in charge of the lives of the people that he is sovereign over, even these Hebrew lives. He's seen that their God is powerful in the previous chapters. He believes, though... That God is still no match for him and his gods. He threatens their life. And you notice he doesn't even actually say his gods. He says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Look how big my statue is. Where's your God? If I remember right, we, we sacked your capital. We destroyed your temple and carried off everything that was there. Where's your God at now? What, what kind of God's going to deliver you out of my hands in this fiery furnace that's right over here if you don't bow down? Again, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king of Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now I hope you listen to that closely because it's important to understand what they said and more important to understand what they did not say. They did not say, our God, our God who we serve will deliver us. They didn't say that. Their confidence does not lie in a God who will remove every rock and every hard place and every threat of death from their path. It's important to let that sink in because, frankly, that's not how we believe today. When you read books and you watch television and movies and you hear a lot of Christians talk very often, it is this fundamental belief, well, God would never let anything bad happen to me. When someone gets sick or goes through an accident, I've heard so many times people say, they were such a godly person, I can't believe that happened to them. As if somehow godly people are spared from suffering. Many Christians today cannot fathom God either allowing or actively sending people through pain. But where has this aversion to suffering and difficulty and pain gotten us? The church in this country is the richest in the world. We have been entrusted with resources beyond the imagination of some of our brothers and sisters in other countries. Yet our commitment to things like holiness in the church and missions is pathetic compared to some of those countries. I would call us spiritual pygmies compared to them, but that would be an insult to the pygmies. In our own denomination, we have over 16 million members on the books and barely 10 show up on any given Sunday. That number drops so sharply on Sunday evenings that most churches just give up and cancel. 
barely, barely any have anything that resembles a prayer meeting anymore. Yet many of our Korean brothers and sisters will set aside time once a month to gather and pray all night, beginning with dinner on Friday and ending with breakfast on Saturday. Praying, 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 praying. And per capita, they send twice as many missionaries as our denomination. Is there suffering involved in an all-night prayer meeting? Maybe if you got bad knees. They're just willing to be inconvenienced in their schedule. They're willing to give up sleep. What are we willing to give up? And if we cannot give up something in the little things, what makes us think we're going to be able to give something up in the big things? When the circumstances come eventually to where what we see going on as kind of a political strategy now becomes a mandate from what should be considered hate speech and what cannot or should not be preached from a pulpit or read from God's Word. Are we going to be ready to say, like these three men, you've got to do what you've got to do, but I know my God is able to save me. They have a clear, defined, unshakable assurance that God is able to deliver them. He is all-powerful. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in charge. He thinks the Babylonian gods are powerful, but they know God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is king over all things. That's the first thing they know. But secondly, listen to this. They have a clear, defined, unshakable assurance that God is also good. He's also good. Not word does not show up in the text. But listen to what they say. Listen to their response. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But if not, if he chooses not to save, if he chooses to let us perish in the flames, even then, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What are they saying? It's staggering. Because I doubt that it's true, because so many wouldn't be able to say it. These men are saying, we have a God who is able to save us. He is all-powerful, and we have a confident assurance that he can do whatever he wants. He can deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he chooses not to, he is still a God worthy of our devotion. He is still a God worthy of our worship, and we will not bow down to your false gods. In other words, in everything, God is good. On the day when you get the rays and you have a healthy grandbaby that's born to you, and you finally pay off your mortgage, God is good. But he is also good the day you get the test results back, and the grandbaby is born still, and a flood takes out your house. Do you have that kind of confidence? Because that's the kind of confidence that these men have. Today is Mother's Day. Let, Let me tell you about a mother who had this kind of confidence. At the age of 22, a man by the name of Adoniram Judson felt called to missionary service in the East. Shortly afterward, he met a woman named Anne Hasselton. He knew her for a month, and then he stated his intention to court her. But he began by writing, writing a letter to her father which said this. Men, think about receiving this kind of letter in the mail or email these days, I guess. I have now to ask whether you could consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, 
to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death? Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woes and despair. That's a letter. Contrary to the norms of the day, her father, who could have just said, sure, you can quarter or forget it, leave, there's no way, he tells her you can make up your own mind. She said yes, and she wrote this note to her friend Lydia Kimball. I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have come about to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me. Adoniram and Anne were married a year and a half later, on February 5, 1812, and sailed for India 12 days later. Anne only lived for another 14 years serving alongside her husband, giving birth to three children, and losing them all. Yet throughout her letters and journals, she affirms over and over again that all of it happened according to the sovereign plan of God and that He is still good. She knew the confidence of faithful devotion. She had an assurance, a confidence in who her God was that allowed her to persevere and do things that most of us would run away from. Well, these men were faithful, and the result we see in verses 19 through 25 is their salvation. Here we see, fourthly, the salvation for faithful devotion, the salvation given for faithful devotion. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have refused the order of the king. In verse 19, we see this. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it is usually heated. You can imagine a smile, what was once a smile on the king's face. Okay, guys, I'll start the music up again. I'll, I'll put everything back in place, and when, and when you hear the music, just bow down, and I'll forget, I'll forget that you didn't bow down once before. And they said, no deal. And you can imagine, he, he, he thinks he's being merciful. He thinks he's being nice. And he's got this kind of, kind of royal, royal smile that then begins to twist into a sneer and a look of furious disgust at these men. Nothing would change. They would worship their Lord alone. And Nebuchadnezzar wants that furnace as hot as he is. Here is gathered every prominent leader from all over the land. And so this opportunity for people to pay homage to him through this great image, a sign of his consolidated power, and now they've ruined it. They've shown him up and made him look weak. And now he will not stand for it. The ovens are heated, we're told, seven times more than normal. That probably simply means as hot as they could possibly get. Why? to make a display of these men. This will be their crematorium. Verse 20, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery burning furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. In other words, they weren't given like the last request, you know, take, you know, take off the coat or you know, have a cigarette or whatever it was. It was just they're grabbed, they're bound. Uh, it all happened almost instantaneously. And they were thrown into the, fiery, the burning fiery furnace. 
because the king's order was urgent. The furnace overheated, we're told. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So imagine, here are these guys, massive dudes, they just grab them, they bind them, they, they're walking to throw them in and they get so close, they themselves ignite and catch fire, dropping the three men as they back away and they're consumed, falling down dead outside the edge of the furnace. As far as the king is concerned, the lives of these three Hebrews are done. No one's going to define him like that again. Again, you can imagine the kind of confident smirk that might have played across his face as he felt his, his rage begin to subside, knowing that justice was satisfied in his mind. You can imagine him standing to see the three men thrown into the fire and kind of pompously, pridefully swinging his robes around, heading back to his throne to be seated. And yet his confidence and joy did not last long. We read in verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four unbound men walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now when I, when I read that, you know, one of the first things I think of is, you know, we live in this age of television and film where entire worlds are created digitally with such convincing detail. You're watching something, you're thinking, are they actually in that city or is that just all green screen? You know, it's just actors walking around and there's nothing around them and they put it all in there. And it's very hard to be impressed by anything, frankly. But put yourself, this is 500 years before Jesus came, maybe actually closer to 600. Put your mind in this king. I mean, this thing is incinerated his guys when they got too close. And he thinks it's all done, and yet as he looks through the flames, here these men are, not just kind of, you know, they're bound. So it's not like they inchworm their way up, and they're kind of like, you know, trying to get out. They're standing up walking around. And he's like, what happened? In fact, he is so unbelieving to his eyes, he like grabs the guys and says, didn't we throw three guys in there? Because they're just not walking around. There is a fourth guy. And even through this blazing inferno, he still shines so brightly, I can clearly make him out. He's more than just a shadow in there. He looks like he is a son of the gods. It is this divine Savior that has come and preserved their life. That's exactly what has happened. He literally cannot believe his eyes, and yet he soon comes to believe that the God of the Jews has saved the Jews. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has proven himself more powerful than the king, more powerful than the Babylonian gods that he serves. They are honored for their faithful devotion by being miraculously preserved from the flames. It's glorious, and we should rejoice in it. But that's not often our experience, is it? We are not often rescued from the flames, whether that is a literal death or perhaps just the everyday pain and struggle of life that we go through. God often doesn't rescue. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11 because in part they refer to the story, but, be, but also because the author of Hebrews provides a contrast. He speaks of those who lived and died by faith, and he says these were people who through faith conquered kingdoms. 
enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. We'll see that in three weeks. Quenched the power of flame. That's our text. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That's the team I want to be on. That's the team I want to be a part of. That I, I want to be with them. But he continues the very next verse. Some. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Same team. Different outcome of their life. Not everyone gets the miracle. Not everyone is preserved through the flames. Not everyone is kept from the everyday pain and suffering that results from living in this world stained by sin, even when you're in the cause of Christ. As we see graphically illustrated in this text, even in the most dire of situations, God is with His people in the midst of suffering. In this case, He's literally standing with them as the fourth man in the flames. Nebuchadnezzar, in his pagan worldview, only knew him as a son of the gods, a divine figure protecting his men. But on this side, on this side of redemptive history, on this side of the cross, we know that this was more than that. This was the son of God. Son who appears here to protect his people from a literal flame does more than just go with his people through suffering. Though he does do that. But he does more than that. He himself endured ultimate suffering under the hand of God under God's wrath against us in our sin so that we would not have to suffer through an eternal flame which we deserve hell itself the son of God Jesus endured God's wrath by dying for us on the cross and yet he rose again he did this so that any who would turn from their sin to God who would trust not that they could make themselves or earn themselves righteous and be right with him but so that God would forgive them because their sins have already been punished on Jesus. That he's not just God, he's not just king, he is Savior. And he would forgive their sins and save them from the wrath to come. Salvation may not come from persecution or suffering in this life, but there is a final, perfect salvation that is given to those who show faithful devotion to Christ. That is the ultimate salvation that all other rescues in this life anticipate. Very briefly, the last few verses, we see the witness of faithful devotion. The witness of faithful devotion. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. 
Sometimes we don't come to the fiery furnace, and sometimes, in fact, almost never do we get exalted to the cabinet position of a, of a, of a pagan king. Sometimes we don't even get a thank you. That's okay. Because ultimately what we see in this text is that our faithful devotion to God is not meant to reflect well on us. It's meant to reflect well on God. The glory doesn't go to us. The glory goes to Him. In other words, we aren't the sun standing at the center of the solar system blazing with radiance. We are the moon. This small little thing that sits in the night sky and sometimes glows incredibly bright. But it's only reflecting the light of the sun. Any glory that shines from us is only meant to be a reflection of the glory of Christ itself. At our best, our goal should be to magnify God and His glory rather than our own. Loved ones, this is, this is a picture of faithful devotion to God. These men accomplished great things. They had great courage. But ultimately, it was because they knew there was a great God that could save them, that could preserve them, that could do all manner of things. And yet, even if He didn't, He was still good and worthy of their worship. I would appeal to you today that that same God of these three men is the same God that we are called to worship and love and serve today. And he demonstrates the same thing to us, that he is both sovereign and good. Because he sent Jesus, who could have called down legions upon legions of angels to be rescued off the cross, and yet he stayed and he endured the wrath for us. So that God is not just a just God who punishes sins. He is a merciful God who extends love to sinners and forgives them when they turn to Him. This is the kind of God that we are called to love and worship. And this is the kind of God that can instill within us faithful devotion, even in the face of death. Father, I pray that that would be the work that is accomplished through the reading and the preaching of your text today. Father, make us to be the kind of people that we see in this text, people that love you because you have first loved us. God, so many of the struggles we have in this life, the answer is found in the cross. Where your son took on flesh, became one of us, and died in our place, though he had never done anything wrong. Oh God, help us to remember that even as we celebrate it in the moments to come. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake.